it is a lot of fun when we sing those songs, isn't it? Really appreciate the worship team leading us, and I appreciate the reverence and the awe that we have in our worship, uh, especially that we've been focusing on this year, and it really means a lot. I know in years past, I've often felt like that's something we lacked, was a sense of reverence and awe, and it really feels like the worship team is bringing that back, and boy, are we grateful for that. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for leading us. I am Joe Collins. Welcome to See Me Church. Our mission is to love and to live like Jesus. Last time we were together, we talked about humbling ourselves before God. Today, I want to talk about humbling ourselves before God's Word. So there was a teenage boy, and uh, he just passed his driver's test. He got his license. Whoa. He just passed his driver's license test. <clears throat> So he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I got my license. I'm ready to drive. I want to start driving. When can I take the car? Dad said, well, son, congratulations. You've done a good job. But I have a couple of things I want you to work on before I'm going to say yes to taking the car. Number one, you got to get some passing grades around here. you got to get your grades up. Your grades haven't been doing great. Number two, I'd like to see you start reading the Bible and uh, learning on your own a little bit. And number three, for crying out loud, I want that hair cut. So the boy said, okay, dad, I'll, I'll do it. So a whole semester of school passes by. He comes, by, he comes home. He's got his report card in his hand. He says, dad, I'm ready. I'm ready to start driving. I've done everything you've asked. Here's my report card, all passing grades. Great job, son. And uh, I've been reading my Bible every day. In fact, I can, I can recite to you all the books of the Bible in order. Great job, son. So I'm ready to drive, right, dad? I'm ready. Dad said, well... There were three things, and you, you didn't mention the last one. Remember, I talked about getting your hair cut? And the boy said, well, Dad, you know, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've been reading the Bible, and I found out that all the great men in the Bible had long hair. <laughs> Samson and John the Baptist, some even would say Jesus had long hair. And without missing a beat, his dad said, that's great, son. And did you notice that they walked everywhere they went? <laughs> You know, it's a usually it's a good idea to know what we're talking about before we start talking. Amen. Let's pray. Turn to Mark chapter 12. Let's pray to God. Father, we are so grateful to be here. Help us to see your word in a new light, a light that changes us, that makes us different, that gives us knowledge and wisdom that can only come from you so that we can say what we need to say when we need to say it and it be right. God, please speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are in Mark chapter 12. We're reading verse 13 to 15. Later, that day, uh, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, for those of you that may be here for the first time or don't know, we're in a series called Jesus Worth Following, and we're going through the book of Mark location by location. Today, we're in the temple area. That, there's a small map here of, of the, the, the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time. That big rectangular there on the top is the, is the temple complex. And we're probably within the courtyard there of that complex. That's where this takes place. Just a couple days ago, 
on, on a Sunday, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem to thousands upon thousands of people coming out, praising him, calling him Messiah and calling down blessings from God. That was on a Sunday. The following day was Monday and Jesus returned to the temple. But this time he clears out all the money changers, all of the merchants that set up shop there in the temple. And while he's doing that, he accuses the temple leadership, the leaders of the religious establishment, the leaders of Judaism. He accuses them of using and abusing sincere worshipers who came to just worship God in God's house of prayer. And they were stealing that from them. They were using and abusing these people. The following day, Jesus returns again to the temple, to the scene of the crime. And as you might imagine, the religious authorities, the leaders are very upset that he's back. As a matter of fact, by this point in time, after what he did on Monday, he was, they were ready to have him killed. They wanted him gone, and they were just trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. How can we arrest this guy? How can we discredit him? How can we kill this guy? And so the first group that he runs into on that Tuesday was a group from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish people, the leaders of the, of the religion, so to speak. And they accuse him of heresy, trying to discredit him. Now, that same day, maybe just a little bit later, he's confronted by another group of religious leaders. We said last week that he spent his whole Tuesday in arguments. How many of us can relate? We spend some days, just seems like it's one big argument all day long at work or at home or wherever we are. Well, that was Jesus' Tuesday, the last week of his life. In this case, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, this is a very unusual group of people to come together. They couldn't be more different it's interesting, as opposed to one another as they were, they both wanted Jesus gone. They say politics makes strange bedfellows. That's sort of what's happening here. The Herodians were a group of, uh, of Jews who were loyal to the house of Herod. Herod had become king of the Jews, appointed by the Romans, sometime uh, a generation before Jesus. And that dynasty sort of held sway. They held power. They had good relations with Rome. Rome was supporting them and backing their, their dynasty. And so these were a group of men who weren't particularly known for their morality. In fact, they were a pretty licentious group of people. But their most distinctive feature was that they were Roman loyalists. They were collaborators with the Romans. The Pharisees were a completely different group of Jews. These, they were known for their legalism towards the scripture. I mean, they here, adhered to the scripture to a fault. And they were also known for their nationalistic pride, their love of the Jewish people and the Jewish nations. And so these two groups being together, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's literally like the Democrats and Republicans coming together to be mad at one guy. Kind of what's happening today. Everybody hates him, apparently. I'm making no political statement. There is no, please don't misinterpret that. I'm just saying, I'm trying to help us connect to the story. But these two groups, they hated each other, and here they are frenemies all of a sudden. And they want to they confront Jesus. They have, a, they have a trap set for him. 
And it has to do with paying a tax, something known as the imperial tax. Now, for the Herodians, they didn't particularly care about the tax. They were loyalists anyways. They had no problem to pay a tax to Caesar uh, and to, to do that. That wasn't their issue. But the Pharisees and many other Jewish sects like the Pharisees absolutely hated the imperial tax. Some flat out refused to pay it. Others paid it, but begrudgingly. There was a whole host of bad attitudes and negative reactions to this tax. It was levied on the Jewish people in 6 AD, and it was, it was put on not just Jewish people, but all non-Roman citizens. So all non-citizens had to pay this tax. To the Jews or to the Pharisees, it was immoral. It was an affront to their religion. When they read their Bibles, they saw that the only legitimate authority in Palestine was the, was the Jewish nation and the Jewish government instilled by God, and that was it, and the only people we should ever have to pay taxes to is them, and if we somehow have to pay taxes to Rome, no matter how small, it wasn't a large tax, it was, it was immoral, it was, it was almost idolatrous to pay this tax to Rome. And so they come to Jesus under the guise of wanting an honest answer. It's like, it's like two oppositely opposed political figures coming into the room and asking you, what's your honest opinion on this subject? And you just know that they got it in for you at some point. Whatever you say, the daggers are going to come out and they're going to pin you down and accuse you of some wrongdoing. And that's exactly what's happening here. Again, they're trying to kill this guy. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. They're really bothered with him and his presence and him being here in the temple courts after all that's happened. They want him not just gone, they want him dead. And so they're trying to find any way possible, any way in their power to get rid of him. So they tried to force him to one side or another of a big debate that was going on in Israel at the time. This was a hot topic. This was a politically charged, deeply emotional issue. We may not relate to it. We think taxes, whatever, I pay my taxes. But we have other deeply emotional issues in our society today, don't we? And so we can, we can relate that that's exactly what's going on here. They are trying to discredit him and ultimately turn popular opinion against him. If he said the tax was wrong, then the Herodians would run to their loyalists in the, in the government, to, to, the, to the Romans, and they would say, hey, here's a guy who's preaching insurrection. And they could have him arrested as an insurrectionist, as a tax evader. If Jesus said the tax was not immoral, then the Pharisees can go, oh, he's misreading Scripture. He's, he's leading us into idolatry and they could accuse him of immorality or idolatry. So what is Jesus to do? You know, we live in a very divided time. It's so divided that I personally have stopped watching all news <laughs> as much as I can and almost all media because you can't watch just a TV show without some statement being made and some agenda being pushed. So I play a lot of solitaire these days. <laughs> and there are deep feelings on all sides of these issues. 
And, and you know, depending on who, who's running the, the media outlet at that time, they tend to favor one side of the deep issues versus the other, and it becomes very controversial. It causes a lot of divisions, and we feel it everywhere we go. It's tense. It's deeply held convictions. People will claim that they have a moral right to their opinion and that your opinion is morally in right or unright or in, inaccurate. <laughs> and therefore you are, you know, we can do away with you and put you in this box and, you know, on and on it goes. This is a real deep-seated issue. In fact, all of these arguments he gets into on this Tuesday were all hot topic issues. They were all big arguments of the day. We really do need to know what we're talking about before we start talking, don't we? Fortunately, Jesus gives us some insight. Verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? Don't you love Jesus? I don't, I don't have a great analogy, and I don't want to make any political statement, but the, the, the guy that comes to my mind was back in the old days when we were kids was Ronald Reagan. He seemed to always have an answer to whatever question came his way. He just did. Whether you liked him or not, he was good in these moments. Jesus is better. Jesus is, you know, Ronald Reagan is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Please let me let me say that now. You notice I'm I'm hedging a lot of my statements because I'm not trying to take a side politically. But I am wanting to communicate and connect us to the story as best as I possibly can. Come on, Joe. Because it's it's powerful. And when you connect to it, whole new things become apparent, whole new ways of thinking, whole new ideas and concepts, it will change your life. That is the power that is in God's Word. I love that Jesus replies with this, why are you trying to trap me? It almost comes off arrogant. I don't think he was being arrogant, but what I love that he does is he just sees right through the guys. He goes right through the hypocrisy of this, of this conversation, and he just lets them know, you're not going to fool me. I'm aware of what you're doing. <laughs> and then he asks for a coin, and he says, whose image and inscriptions on this coin? He asks a question that was better than their question. Like he did last time with the first interaction when they came to him and said, by whose authority are you doing these things? And he said, well, you tell me. Whose authority was John the Baptist doing his things? And all of a sudden there was no answer. Everybody had to be quiet. It was a similar dynamic. Jesus says, whose inscription's on this coin? And all you could just, you could, the smarter ones were immediately like, oh, shoot. <laughs> we said the wrong thing. And then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's? As we talked about before, the Herodians were probably not so upset over this issue, but the Pharisees and, and many others in Israel were. <coughs> they, 
They, they saw the Romans as imposters. They are illegitimate. They are not my government. I did not vote for them. That was their posture. Very opposed. Extremely oppositional. Refusing to bend to their authority, to their governorship. Whether it was outwardly like the zealots who literally, a group of zealots, carried knives. And if they found a Roman alone, they would kill him. To the Pharisees who wouldn't go quite that far, but in their hearts, they had daggers. This was the depth of the hatred, of the animosity, of the offense that the Jews felt towards Rome occupying Palestine. The only right authority in Palestine to the Jews is God and His people and His government. And they could, they could look at the Scriptures and they could see this is immoral. We're forced to pay this tax. You're committing idolatry if you pay this tax. And you could imagine the people struggling to understand what do I do if I don't pay this tax? I could be arrested. I could, I could be killed. If I do pay this tax, somehow I'm sinning against God and all that is good. And so they justified their opinion. And, and, and regarding the tax and anything else the Romans did, scripturally, they could, they could take you to the scroll, to the passage, and to the verse and tell you why it was wrong. I love what Jesus does, though. Everybody focuses on the coin, it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar, and that's a beautiful and wonderful answer, but I want to focus on the other thing he said. Give to God what is God's. He's talking to deeply religious people. And he removes the conversation from the weeds, from the details, from the argument over are the Romans legitimate or not, and he brings it back to God. I heard a of a preacher who, who taught a message, and it really, I haven't even heard the message yet, i got to find it, but it resonated with me. He talked about the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, and how they didn't protest, they didn't hold up signs, they didn't do sit-ins, they didn't engage in riots, and, and they lived in a very corrupt society. What they did was they preached Jesus. That's what they did. That was, that was the value they added to the conversation. I think we could learn a lot from our early brothers and sisters. Rather than getting sucked into these political arguments, these highly charged moral debates, which I know I want to do, it's probably better, I'm probably better served and they're better served if I would just preach Jesus into the equation. If I could bring the love of God into their life in some way, I think I would do something better and longer lasting for them. We do need to be careful of these issues. And we do need to get the spirit of Jesus and understand how he handled these controversial conversations, these subjects. So Jesus draws their attention to God, who they would agree is the rightful authority over all people and all land. And in doing this, he's reminding them that government, 
good, bad, or indifferent, has a legitimate place in God's economy. In God's order, there is room for government. And therefore, there's room for taxes. And government decisions and government directions that we may not like, we may not agree with, but we can't say they're always morally corrupt just because we don't like them. I want so badly for my will to be God's will. You understand what I'm saying? I want so badly to think that He thinks the way I think. And when I read the Bible, if I read it with that, I can make it say anything I want it to say. And so did the Pharisees. They saw, they knew that they were right. And so when they read the scriptures, it was the way they saw it. They started with themselves and then they went out and discovered what God agreed with them on. And I think we do that a lot. I think as Christians, we can be guilty of it. Certainly the world outside of us does it all the time. Politicians always make some reference whenever they can to the, the, the Jesus-like behavior of their, uh, you know, of their law or of their choice or their decision, right? People make these claims all the time on, on both sides of every issue because they're reading into the scriptures what they want it to say because they so badly want God to agree with them. And I do the same thing. But Jesus was different. Jesus started with God's will. And that became his will. And when he read scripture, he read it with an openness and a wonder and an appreciation to learn what it was that he needed to learn, to see what he didn't see, to know what he didn't know. And that is the posture that we ought to have when it comes to God's word. We ought to read it beginning with God's will, not with ours will. So whenever we're dealing with difficult issues, start with God. So what do you do, though, when the government is demanding something that is immoral of you? It's it's, it's, uh, shocking to say this but I can foresee a time where we might be faced with that very question. What do we do when government's demands are immoral? How do we respond into that situation? How do we speak Jesus into that conversation? I'm asking, do you know? Because I don't, I'm just wondering. (laughs) I want to close out by talking about a man named Daniel. He lived many generations before Jesus. He was a follower of God. And he is such a great example of a person who brought God into the equation. God was first and everything else followed from that. And he lived in a time 
very distant from us, but far more challenging than we face today. Imagine being kidnapped or, or imagine, you, you know, your neighborhood being defeated by a foreign power of a completely different faith and taking you away as a teenager into their land and forcing you to adopt their customs, their beliefs, their practices on the pain of death. That's Daniel's story. He was taken captive from Israel by a nation called Babylon. Babylon exiled him or took him into the into Babylon proper, back into, I guess, in modern day would have been Iran, took him back to Babylon and put him in charge in their government, made him one of their officials, and then everything they could do was to foreturn him into a Babylonian. How did he handle that? Well, I want to look at two quick passages. Daniel 1, verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So the backstory here is right off the bat, Daniel, they figured out he was a pretty bright guy, so they wanted him to do some high-level work. And so they put him into this, this group with other captives and other people. And they, and you know, he had to, the cafeteria only served one kind of food, and it wasn't food that was kosher to Daniel. And Daniel had to make a decision. Is this, a, is this an issue I should stand on or not? And for Daniel, he, he understood the scriptures, and he saw that this was an issue of godliness of righteousness. And so for Daniel, he made the decision that he would not defile himself with this food that they were trying to feed him, this unclean food that wasn't kosher to his faith. There was protestations. The, the guy in charge was trying to talk him out of it. Everybody was worried he was going to get killed. Daniel said, look, give me a couple days. See if, you know, put me on my diet and see if I'm, if, after a few days, if I look okay, no harm, no foul. If I get sick, then I'm wrong. And that's what they did. And Daniel was healthy and happy and looked great, and he was effective at what he did. And so the decision was made, okay, let him eat what he wants. Went, score one for the good guys. He, made, he effected change by bringing God's will into the equation. He didn't protest. He didn't do a sit-in. He didn't go rally 100 other people and march on the capital city of Babylon. He, and none of that. He just brought God into the situation and his faith in God. And he was blessed. Many years later, different kings, different rulers take over. Daniel's still in the service. By the way, Daniel spent his entire rest of his life in the service of Babylon. Even as Israelites were allowed to return back to their homeland, Daniel stayed. He served like three or four different Babylonian kings. And he was a man of God the entire time. Later in his career... This is in Daniel chapter 6. It says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the, windows, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. The decree was that no one was allowed to pray to anyone other than the king. So a bunch of uh, uh, enemies of Daniel wanted to get rid of Daniel, so they lobbied the king to pass a law that you could only worship the king and pray to him. Well, of course, Daniel goes back to Scripture that's clearly a no-no. That's a moral issue. Daniel stands on his conviction. He goes home and he just does what he always does. He prays to God. He gets arrested and ultimately gets sentenced to death and thrown into a lion's den. No protestation, no march, no sit-in. He just accepted the outcome as it was given. Now, miraculously... 
God kept the lion's mouth shut. Daniel survived. He was taken out. The king was happy because he didn't want to lose Daniel. He changed the law. Great story in Israel's history. But what if the lion did eat him? <laughs> yeah, that would be a bummer, but Daniel didn't know that God would close the lion's mouth. So what do I learn here? What do we, what do we glean from the example of Daniel and how do we connect it to the teaching of Jesus that helps us bring Jesus into our equation, helps us bring Jesus into whatever controversy we deal with today. Three things. Number one, make sure that what you think is biblical is biblical. The Pharisees made this mistake. Paying taxes, in that case, was not a moral problem. But they convinced themselves that it was, and then they tried to fight a battle that God wouldn't fight for them. How many times have we got ourselves into problems and we feel totally helpless and defenseless because God is not in our corner in this one? He doesn't happen to agree with what we think. So number one, if you're going to stand on your morality, if you're going to stand on your conviction, then you better make sure that your conviction agrees with what God agrees with. Amen. Number two, and this is where Daniel to me is such a, a great example, use whatever possible means you have to honor both. If the government says something and it seems problematic to our faith, and God says something and they seem like they're in conflict with one another, my first line of defense is how do I honor both? Daniel did that with the food. There's a problem here. It's conflicting for me. I have a moral obligation to, to, to maintain this type of diet. You're forcing me. Can we negotiate here? Can we come to a win-win? Is there a third option? He didn't go right to protesting, sitting in, marching, screaming profanities and obscenities, accusing all kinds of evil on the other person. No, he tried to figure out a peaceful resolution, a solution in the middle. It's too easy for us sometimes to just write people off that we don't agree with. It's too easy for us to remove our love and to not bring Jesus into the equation because that person is very difficult. And I just don't see eye to eye with them. I, I will admit, I struggle with this. I was at breakfast yesterday. person sat down at the table next to me wearing a shirt with a slogan on it that really offended me. And I wanted so badly to engage them in a conversation that wouldn't have been godly. But I had to remove myself. And what a loss. Because maybe I could have engaged them with what Jesus would say about an issue. Maybe I could have brought in Jesus into their life in some way without being judgmental, without removing my love or my concern for them, and maybe we could have had a good conversation and each learned something. But I wasn't there. Right. I just left. Because at the time, I didn't have Jesus in my mind. I had me in my mind. And I wanted to say what I wanted to say. I think 
There's always an opportunity in every situation to bring Jesus to it. But this goes to the third and final point. You have to accept what happens next. That's the hard part. In the second example, Daniel kept praying. Moral obligation, clearly in Scripture. It's idolatrous to worship anyone else other than God. He kept praying to God, didn't hide it. Wasn't out in the street doing it, but in his, in his privacy, in his house, he did what he had to do. They were looking for him anyways. They caught him and they sentenced him to death and he didn't object. He accepted the outcome. Let me add this. He stayed faithful and accepted the outcome. Christianity's history is littered with believers who went to their deaths because they believed in what Jesus said. And the oddity about them, what history remembers about them, was that they did it willingly. They accepted the outcome. You can only do that if you believe that there's something better as a result. At some point, Christians, followers of God, Daniel himself, they knew that there was a better outcome on the other side. And so whatever time of trouble they would have to face, it wasn't worth losing the reward that God would give them. In Daniel's case, twice he gets rescued, but in many other Christians' cases, there was no rescue. But trust me, if they were here today, they would tell you it was worth it. So we got to stay faithful and accept the outcome. So here is the sermon in a nutshell. Before you speak, make sure you know what you're talking about. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close with a word of prayer and you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this audience and this great group of people who love you and come to seek and hear your word. And God, I pray that... We leave here refreshed, renewed, reinvigorated to know and understand your will and to make your will our will, not the other way around. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.